welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Exhortation by Matt Carpenter on May 29th, Lord's Day Service. The words to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 31 through chapter 9, verse 1. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Jesus' words in this passage are particularly tough and hard. And so, Father, we ask for a special measure of your grace as we reflect on what Jesus says in this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter and the disciples are having a problem crossing borders, which is interesting because we in our own day have the same problem of crossing borders borders. There is a border that separates our idea of goodness and glory and God's idea of goodness and glory. And in these verses, Jesus is teaching us that to live in God's kingdom is to cross the border from our side to God's side. It's to cross the border from our understanding of goodness and glory to God's understanding of goodness and glory. Now when you look at the context, what's going on here in Mark chapter eight, in the previous verses, you'll remember from the sermon a few weeks ago, Peter begins to see, but he sees the spiritual equivalent of walking trees. And so both Peter and the disciples require a second touch before they will see all things clearly. In particular, before they will see clearly exactly what the Messiah must do to save his people. And that is that the Messiah must suffer and die. And throughout Mark's gospel, the disciples seem to have cotton in their ears. Jesus' hints, teaching, warnings, and miracles do not get through. It's almost like Jesus is winking at the blind or whispering to the deaf. The disciples don't catch on to the truth immediately, and they're distracted by red herrings. For example, Mark chapter 9, verse 34, they bicker about who's the greatest. 
The failure of the disciples, however, does not mean that they are hopelessly ignorant. The disciples' blindness is different from the blindness of the scribes and Pharisees. The disciples at times do seem to understand, and then they seem to not understand. And here in chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus tells Peter that he, as the Messiah, must suffer, die, and rise again. But we see in Mark chapter 8, verse 32, that Peter won't listen. That's not Peter's idea of goodness and glory. That's not Peter's idea of what the Messiah will do. And so in chapter 8, verse 33, Jesus rebukes Peter. And now in chapter 8, verse 34 through 38, Jesus sets out to reprogram the disciples. In particular, to reprogram their understanding of goodness and glory. To reprogram their understanding of exactly what the Messiah is. Because the disciples, as we've seen throughout Mark's gospel, the disciples have an incomplete picture of the Messiah and they have an incomplete picture of the kingdom of God. And so in these verses, especially verses 34 through 38, Jesus is giving them a fuller picture of God's kingdom. And so Jesus, in this passage, teaches us three things about what it is to live in the kingdom of God. So first, to live in the kingdom of God is to live as one carrying a cross. Look with me at verses 34 and 35. In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So we see here in verse 34, one of the more famous sayings of Jesus, that to be a disciple of Christ, you must take up your cross and follow him. So the immediate question then is, what does that mean? What does it mean to take up your cross? This is a metaphor. What does this mean? Well, look at verse 34. Look at what he says. He says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, Jesus in this statement is explaining what it means. To take up your cross is principally to deny yourself. And so we as disciples of Christ are to deny ourselves and take up our cross. So let's think about a cross for a moment. What is a cross? Well, where you and I sit right now, we think of a cross as a sign of redemption is something to be sung about and celebrated, something that brings joy. So we wear crosses around our necks. We display crosses on our walls in our homes. But in the first century Roman world, that is not how they viewed a cross. In the first century Roman world, a cross is an instrument of execution. They would no more hang a cross around their neck than you would hang a Nazi oven around your neck. They would no more display a cross on their wall than you would display a picture of the Soviet gulags on your wall. For them, the cross is not a symbol of redemption. It becomes that, but it's not that yet. For them, the cross is a symbol of execution. It's an instrument of execution. In fact, perhaps the most brutal form of state-sanctioned execution in the history of the world. 
Jesus says, to be a disciple of Christ, you must take up your cross and follow him. What does that mean? What does it mean to take up your cross? Well, it means to join Jesus on the way to execution. To take up your cross and follow Jesus is to follow Christ on the way to execution, if necessary. The cross in the first century Roman world was a vivid and horrifying image of death. You were to take that up if you were to follow Christ. Now, when you think about the context here, remember, the metaphor of taking up your cross begins with this context of Jesus explaining to the disciples the nature of the kingdom and about the Messiah. And so back in verse 31, he tells the disciples that he, as the Messiah, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then in verse 34, he says, to be my disciple, you must take up your cross. And so we need to be careful not to domesticate Jesus's take up your cross teaching as merely that of enduring unpleasant things. That is not what this means. To take up your cross does not mean that you just have to endure a few unpleasant things in your life. That's not what this means and it's never been what this means. Everyone who lives in this world will endure unpleasant things. It is not special for Christians to endure unpleasant things. This is a fallen world, it's difficult, and it's hard. Just by virtue of the fact that you rise to live another day, you're enduring unpleasant things. To take up your cross and follow Jesus is not to merely endure unpleasant things. It's not merely to endure when the internet goes out. Oh, internet went out for five minutes. I'm taking up my cross. That's not what this means. The point is that our way of life is to deny ourselves to the point of brutal execution if necessary. And when the apostles took up their cross, it was to the point of brutal execution. It was as martyrs. Now that doesn't mean that take up your cross is martyrdom for all Christians, but it is what this meant for Peter and the disciples as Jesus says these words to them. And so let's be honest about this passage. This is a really hard passage. And it's passages like this that makes Christianity distasteful for many. They look at this and they see what it means. They understand what it means. And they say, I don't want to do that. That's hard, that's difficult. And they think, well, I don't want to be part of Christianity, therefore. I don't want to live this life. Christianity is a drag. It's gloomy. It's frightful. It's no fun. Because it requires me to take up my cross in this way. And that's why many Christian leaders try to soften these kinds of passages. Try to make Christianity appear easy, like cotton candy and candy canes. And it's all going to be great and wonderful. And let's smile some more. And so they repitch Christianity. But the truth is, is that Christ calls us to take up our cross. And then Jesus shows us how to take up our cross by his own example. And so remember, verse 31, Jesus says the Messiah will suffer many things and be killed. And then in verse 34, he says, you must take up your cross. 
And so this verse is leading us to reflect on the peculiar character of Christ's self-denial. And we need to do this because modern man thinks self-denial is offering help to someone when you have a pretty good hunch they're going to say no. That's self-denial in the modern world. But that's not Christian self-denial. Christian self-denial is not about the veneer of politeness. Christian self-denial is that which brought Christ to earth in the form of a man. God the Son had all power and heavenly glory, but he denied himself, came to earth in the form of a man, and suffered a brutal death. Christ is our example of self-denial. And that's why Scripture presents no pictures of faithful men who are soft and luxurious. Because we're called to self-denial, to take up our cross to the point of brutal execution if necessary. Because self-denial means to the point of death if necessary. And so then what does it mean for a Christian to practice self-denial? On the day-to-day level, what does it mean for a Christian to practice self-denial? Well, it's about denying self. And perhaps the greatest lie of the modern world is that indulging the self brings happiness. Think about that. Perhaps the greatest lie of the modern world is that indulging the self brings happiness. And so people set off to indulge the self. This is what they've been coached to do by their health and wellness instructor. You're supposed to indulge the self and then you'll be happy. Just indulge the selfishness of sin. Of course, they don't frame it like that, but that's what's happening. And so people set off to indulge the selfishness of sin. You see it everywhere. When little boys whine for their iPad, what are they doing? They are indulging the selfishness of sin. When teenagers are entitled to more, they are indulging the selfishness of sin. When the married couple needlessly argues over trivial things, they are indulging the selfishness of sin rather than denying themselves. When the elderly sit in the chair of bitterness, they are indulging the selfishness of sin. And so indulging the selfishness of sin tempts people all the time, every day. And it's because people indulge the self rather than deny it that there is so much unhappiness in the world today. It's a lie. Indulging the selfishness of sin doesn't bring happiness. It brings the exact opposite. Self-indulgence always leads to personal and moral disaster. And yet people return to it day after day, time and time again. It's like someone touches the stove, burns themselves, and then returns the next day to touch the stove again. And the stove, lest you missed it, is sinful self-indulgence. It brings manifold unhappinesses, and yet we do it day after day. Self-indulgence, sinful self-indulgence, makes family gatherings uncomfortable. Sinful self Indulgence causes broken friendships. Sinful self-indulgence is why we won't forgive that person who wronged me. Sinful self-indulgence ruins vacations. Sinful self-indulgence leads to large financial debts. Sinful self-indulgence pits siblings against each other rather than for each other. All of these things, all of this unhappiness because of 
sinful self-indulgence. Because rather than deny ourselves, we indulge ourselves. All of this because of the selfishness of sin. All of this because of the idolatry of self. When we reduce all of life to be about me. And so maybe we can call it me-alism. Not nihilism, you know, nihilism, N-I-H-I-L-I-S-M. Nihilism is where there is no meaning. No, nihilism is actually not the prevailing philosophy of the world, as the philosophers tell us. The prevailing philosophy of the world is nihilism. It's not that there is no meaning, it's nihilism, where all meaning starts and stops with me. It's the narcissistic age, I think Christopher Lash called it. It's not an age of nihilism, it's an age of nihilism. Nihilism is where the only thing that matters is what I want. Mealism is where the only thing that matters is what I dream, what I crave, what I feel, what I desire, what I lust for. For mealism, a good day is one of easy pleasure followed by easy pleasure. In mealism, a good marriage is when my spouse carries out my every petition. In mealism, a good church is where they finally do all the things I thought church should be. I just didn't want to have to do it myself. In mealism, a good family is where everyone is looking at me waiting for my commands. In mealism, a good job strokes my ego and exalts my accomplishments. The problem with mealism is that it leads to a shriveled kingdom of me. The reason mealism leads to misery is because it's not true. The world isn't designed for you to be at the center of it. And so the problem with pride, the problem with arrogance, the, the sin of nihilism, it's a false cosmology because it puts me at the center of the world. When in reality, God made the world and therefore he is at the center of the world. The world is right when his kingdom comes, not when my kingdom comes. And so when Jesus says, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Yes, that sounds difficult. And it might sound like you're losing your life. And it might sound like you're going to lose all the pleasures of sin. But in reality, you're not losing your life. You are, as verse 35 goes on to say, you are saving your life. And that's why the, the, the reason modern man can't understand verse 35, look at verse 35 now, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The reason modern man can't understand verse 35 is because modern man has tried to update God to modern thinking. And so the up-to-date God is very concerned with your comfort. The up-to-date God is okay when you satisfy those fleshly, carnal, lustful desires. The up-to-date God wants to make sure you have plenty of entertainment time in your week. The problem is the real God is very different from the up-to-date God. The up-to-date God wants you to be guided by your own selfish interests. The real God calls you to abandon your selfish interests. To abandon your selfish interests is to join Christ even to the place of brutal execution, if necessary. 
And that is what was necessary for the disciples. The self-denial that Jesus is talking about here is on a different level altogether from giving up fried food at Lent. That's not what this is about. The temptation to not carry your cross daily is explained well in C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. Screwtape explains to Wormwood that Christians are supposed to submit to God. And Screwtape explains that this means that Christians should accept with patience the tribulation that God's providence has dealt to them. Screwtape then tells Wormwood that the way to subvert the Christian's obedience to deny themselves and carry their cross is to repeatedly convince the Christian that this present moment isn't the appointed cross that Jesus spoke about. And that's how you get a bunch of professing Christians who have never practiced self-denial. They daily tell themselves, well, this isn't the time to deny myself. I mean, I heard what Jesus said about denying your cross. That's good. I've got a commentary at home about it even. And I heard a sermon about it once. I believe that. The thing, though, is that right now is not what he meant. Right now is not the time to deny myself. This isn't my cross to carry. This isn't what Jesus was talking about. You know, because if, if I deny myself now, just think about it logically, then that will lead to this, which will lead to that, which will lead to that, and that will all be very unpleasant. And I'll be very unhappy in all of that, and, and God called us to be joyful, so obviously right now, right now is not the time to deny myself. I know it's going to come, and I'm ready for it. You know, I've got that commentary on my shelf. I heard that sermon. I'm ready to deny myself when the time comes, but right now, right now is not the time. That's how we get a bunch of professing Christians who have never denied themselves, who have never carried their cross. And so in this passage, Jesus is teaching us three things about what it means to live in his kingdom. And I call you to live as one carrying a cross. To live in his kingdom is to live as one carrying a cross. Second, to live in his kingdom is to live as one who has a soul. Look with me at verses 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So Jesus here tells us that human beings have a soul. And he also tells us in verse 36 that it's possible for a person to forfeit his soul. Which means it is possible for a man to lose his soul. Now to lose your soul doesn't mean you become soulless. To forfeit your soul is to be separated from the one who made your soul. A person loses something essential when they are separated from the maker of his soul. And Jesus calls this forfeiting your soul in verse 36. So how does a person forfeit his soul? Well, look at verse 36, he tells us. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So to lose your soul is when you, in the words of Jesus, verse 36, gain the whole world. So then what does it mean to gain the whole world? Well, first, it means to gain the things of this life only. To gain those things which sinful humanity naturally values most. Things like praise from man, special treatment, 
and creature comforts. And so the person who clings to the things of this life as their ultimate concern forfeits his soul because he's gaining the world. The second thing it means to gain the whole world is it means to gain the temporary pleasure of sin. The way to forfeit your soul is to run into open sin. The way to forfeit your soul is to serve the lust and carnal pleasures of life without even a thought of repentance or self-control. And so, if you are here and you want to lose your soul, then here's what you need to do. If you want to lose your soul, then you need to set an unrelenting pattern of sinning without repentance, without self-control. If you want to lose your soul, then you need to live in such a way that sin in your life looks normal. If you want to lose your soul, then you need to live in such a way that it looks strange when you're not sinning. You need to become the person that when you actually do something righteous, people are shocked. Whoa! Whoa, he actually obeyed the Lord. That's surprising. Become that person. That's how you forfeit your soul. That's how you lose your soul. And let's think about the logic of verse 36. If you forfeit your soul by gaining the world, then that means the way to keep your soul is to gain Christ. The way to real life, to eternal life, is to let go of sin and repent of sin in the power of the Spirit. And this is all modeled in Jesus himself because it starts with his death and resurrection. That's the self-denial example that Christ has given us. That's the supreme example of the new perspective of kingdom living, the death and resurrection of Christ. In other words, do not let the concerns of this life now cause you to forget that which is to come. You see, the soul relates to something beyond this life. And so, verses 36 and 37 are telling you to live as one who has a soul. So leave behind the sins of this world in favor of the eternal pleasures of the world to come. The way to heed Jesus' words in verses 34 through 37 is to fill up the space of your soul. Fill up the space of your soul. And so, don't be ashamed to read your Bible because that's how you fill up the space of your soul. Don't be ashamed to turn the other cheek because that's how you fill up the space of your soul. Don't be ashamed to sing loudly, even if you can't carry a tune in a bucket, because wimpy singing is soul-killing singing. But loud, joyful singing is how you fill up the space of your soul. Don't be ashamed to think things that invite the laughing scorn of the world. That's how you fill up the space of your soul. Don't be ashamed to raise your kids in a way that the government schools disapprove of. That's how you fill up the space of your soul. Don't be ashamed to get on your knees before the king of creation. That's how you fill up the space of your soul. Don't be ashamed to live differently than your neighbor who indulges their sinful desires. That's how you fill up the space of your soul. And so this is your task, to live as one who has a soul, to live so as to fill up the space of your soul. And so in this passage, we see that to live in 
his kingdom is first to live as one carrying a cross and second it's to live as one who has a soul third and finally to live in his kingdom is to live as one unashamed of the Lord look with me at verse 38 for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Every Christian knows the temptation to be ashamed of Christ and to be ashamed of being a Christian. Every Christian has read the story of Peter denying the Lord in shame in Mark 14 and then Peter goes away and he weeps bitter tears. And every Christian hopes that in those moments of temptation that they can stare down the hectoring spirits and remain publicly loyal to Christ. And so there are two things you must remember if you are to live without shame in our Lord. There are two things you must remember so that you can live in a way that shame in Jesus departs from you. The first is to never forget as Faithful tells Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, never forget that the poor man that loves Christ is richer than the greatest man who hates him. And second, if you were to live without shame in our Lord, the second thing you must do is you must never forget, also, as Faithful tells Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, that what is esteemed by the people of the world is an abomination to God, and what is esteemed by God is an abomination to the people of the world. See, the reason Christians become ashamed of God is because they temporarily, in that pressure moment, want the approval of man. And so, they want to fit in. They want to walk in the same direction as the protesters. They want to go with them. Otherwise, they might get trampled by the mob. But the reason Christians can't live their lives so as to fit in with the world, the reason Christians can't walk in the same direction as the world's protesters, the reason Christians can't join the conventional wisdom of the world's mob is because Jesus set the path for us and Jesus was willing to be despised. Jesus was willing to face rejection. Jesus was willing to be trampled by the mob and that is the pattern we must follow. And more than that, Jesus was willing to be despised, rejected, and trampled by God the Father on the cross, and therein be the sacrificial lamb for our sin, so our sin could be put away. And why was Jesus willing to do this? Well, it's so that we could have peace with God. It's so that we could be forgiven of our sins and have new life with our Creator so that we would be his children, so that we would be welcomed into his presence, no matter the opposition we face in this world from the shouting crowd, so that we would have the forever love of God, which frees us from needing the temporary approval of the world. So with that, let us close in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we need your strength to live as those carrying a cross. We need your strength to live as those who have a soul. And we need your strength to live as unashamed of the Lord. And we know, Father, that we have your strength through the body and blood of Christ applied to us through the Holy Spirit. 
And so, Father, fill us with the power of Christ as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh, 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 oh,